0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by National Book Award finalist Brandon Hobson to discuss his new book, The Removed. Today we talk about the pressures of writing a book after critical acclaim, combating stereotypes against Native Americans, and following one's passions towards a career. The Stacks Book Club pick for March is Everybody Looking by Candice Elo, and we will discuss the book in detail on Wednesday, March 31st with Nick Stone. If you love this show and want more of it, join the Stacks Pack over on Patreon. That's where you can join our monthly book club video chats and connect with other lovers of the Stacks. Here's how it works. You contribute once a month, and you earn perks. And you get to know your money is helping make this show possible. If you're interested in joining, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Andrea Toth, Tasha Samborski, Susan Barry, Anna Burkovich, Rebecca, Emma Weinert, Kimberly Nevels, Heather John Fogarty, Elizabeth Coleman, and Rachel Gonzalez-Green. Thank you so much Stacks Pack. I would be lost without all of you. Okay, now let's talk with author Brandon Hobson. All right, everyone, I am very excited today. I am joined by National Book Award shortlist author. His name is Brandon Hobson, and Brandon's new book just came out this year. is called The Removed. Brandon, welcome to The Stacks.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: I'm so excited to talk to you. I just, I have a bazillion questions for you, but let's start kind of where we always start, which is in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us a little bit about The Removed?
1: Sure. So the removed is comes out of the, the question of uh, violence against natives, and I wanted to parallel the violence that is happening now against natives um, with the violence that was happening 200 years ago, um, and so th- this it's really about a family who is dealing with the aftermath 15 years after. Um, their son has been shot by a police officer, and how they're coping, trying to 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 learn to heal and to learn to forgive, and and at the same time there is a spirit ancestor who is telling about the trail and how he was killed for refusing to leave um, when Andrew Jackson sent the soldiers in to remove tribes that came out of Georgia, North Carolina, and ended up. In what's now known as Oklahoma, uh, was then became ter- Indian Territory, which is where I'm from, and that's basically what the the book is about.
0: Yeah, that's good. That was good. You you nailed it. I'm so so. I've heard you talk on other interviews a little bit about the book, and this this the removed has multiple family members, and as as you mentioned, also someone sort of from a spirit, an ancestor who tell the stories in their own voice um and so you're weaving through these different characters and i heard you say that you wrote each character's story individually and then kind of wove it all together so i'm curious about a few things because you're the first author i've ever spoken to who has done it this way most people say they kind of write it all at once in different sections so i'm curious a how you decided who you wanted to start with or who you were going to leave for the end and B, how, if at all, did you keep the stories from bleeding together as you were writing them, knowing what you knew about the first person you wrote about versus the fourth person you wrote about?
1: So the first part of that question, I believe I started with Maria, the mother's section first. Okay. And, and I know I've said, I, you know, I worked on them individually, I, I think mostly. I, I know there was a part where, or a point, where I got a long ways into one thread or one character and then began another one. Mm. I don't remember the process it's been 4 years ago that <laughs> right. uh, three maybe 3 years ago. I think I really only spent you know just about 2 years writing this. It's not it's, it's not a very long book. So so Maria I think Maria's section was first because I began with you know that I began with thinking about the violence um, and police shootings um, against native teenagers. and knew I wanted to write a novel about this. And um, I'm glad that last, so not to take away from police shootings of other people of color. Um, and I'm, you know, after this last summer with George Floyd and, and all right. the news media that has, um, you know, that's, that's attracted national news, news media. I was thinking about how little that was going on um, in this would, this would have been, 2018. It -hmm. was when my last book was out and I knew I needed, I, I always have to be working on something. right. Right. And, and, um, so I, I immediately jumped into, you know, the idea of just at least start drafting something. Right. And so I'd been reading about that. And so I started Maria's sections, um, as a mother and her husband, Ernest, who has Alzheimer's and just really just kind of playing around with, with them, this question, how are they healing? How are they still coping 15 years after their son had been shot? And so, you know, that's when I started drafting all that. And really, you know, from Maria's perspective, um, actually it started out in third person. I was writing those Maria's sections uh, early on, the mother's um, in third person. I later switched them to first.
0: Right. Well, it was how you sort of like kept the characters, own experiences separate as you're writing them from one another?
1: Yeah, really it, you know, doors opened along the way. Mm. I knew that, you know, that I, I was, I was writing Maria's section and then I thought that I, I want, you know, this needs to be a family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then Sonia, I believe Sonia's came next. um, And, and then, Edgar and Chawla I, I, although early on, I knew I wanted to incorporate some of the old traditional Cherokee stories into a novel. And I knew I was thinking about how can I thread together these ideas of violence from 200 years ago with paralleling with the violence that's still happening today by the authority, right? Police. And that, you know, that, that, that was all beginning, but I, I think the more I started writing about the family, the more excited I became about rather than just having a background sort of a you know flashback you know going back and jumping back and forth in time i I wanted to do it different, you know I, I wanted to do it in, in a what I hope is a more uh unique way or or artful way, which is to have these epistolary sections where chala is speaking to his son and they were both killed, you know, for refusing uh, to leave the land. And I, I, you know, I wanted to to have him sort of tell his son traditional Cherokee stories and also about his manifestation into what becomes a spirit as he watches the trail, the migration begin and sees all the suffering and, you know, details and the sickness and disease and, and, uh, cold winter. And that, that became a very exciting way for me to try to, after I'd written the family story to go back and thread in Chala.
0: Right. To kind of like bring it all together and like make, yeah, like bring, make it not make it make sense, but make it have a greater historical resonance.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I wanted some history in there. But again, I wanted to do it in a very unique way. Right. And and in a way, it's I guess it's it's not really a traditional way of writing a a narrative is to sort of bring in the spirit of voice. But, you know, I I look at this as sort of post colonial novel. Hmm. And I also look at it as the type of fiction that I, I am interested in. To me, some of the best fiction feels like a work of art. Yeah, You know, these are writers or artists and the stuff that I love to read moves me in the way that good art does.
0: That's so interesting that you say that because one of the things that I took away from my experience of reading the book was how I always knew what was going on in the story and I always knew where I was in the story, but there was a lot of sort of mood and suspense that was always sort of changing. And and I definitely felt like you were playing with what you wanted your audience to be feeling and experiencing in a way that I think a lot of artists who do visual art like like paintings or or film or whatever um that they play with their audience. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: You mean the the overall vision?
0: I... Well, it's sort of like the the vibe. Like there's parts of this book that felt sort of spooky to me or felt like maybe like a, a thriller mm-hmm. like you were cultivating a very kind of you were cultivating a mood I felt like maybe you weren't maybe that's just how I read it in my bathtub I don't know but (laughs) I'm curious sort of like aside from the actual story was there something that you wanted to evoke in your in your reader
1: yes absolutely I mean I want I want to in some ways really move the reader and challenge them in ways that they don't necessarily feel right Mm. And, and I think that, you know, when when we're talking about things like violence, abuse, r- race, um, and these very serious issues, people need to to challenge themselves, right. to think about them. And so, yes, this is, you know, this is not a feel-good uh, novel. I understand. <laughs> and it becomes, <laughs> I, you know, it's not light, but I, so I want people to really, be moved and disturbed, I guess, by some things, and the way that you know an influence on me is Murakami. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read Murakami. He writes about the surreal and the the other world, you know, in in ways that feel very dreamlike. So I wanted to kind of incorporate that mm-hmm. a little bit because you know it's not a it's this is not an essay on a police shooting a right. racially profiled. it's 15 years afterwards and how it is still affecting the family. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, these things aren't, don't go away very easily. Yeah. So I wanted to really uh, challenge the reader.
0: I think one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that you, you seem to respect your audience and um, trust your audience in a way. I never felt like I don't know if you ever experienced this, but sometimes I feel like the author is like babysitting me and they're like explaining every choice and every character and every motivation. And they're like, I'm doing this because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so I'm obsessed with author intent and also with authors relationship to the audience. Would you mind speaking a little bit about sort of how you approach writing for your audience and making sure that they are with you without like holding their hand?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's very important to me because there's nothing worse, nothing worse. that a writer can do <laughs> than than to try to write. I mean, to try to explain, you know, and especially if you're talking about, you know, these are native issues, um, you know, and, and I'm talking about tribe. Every tribe is very different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going into an explanation about the tribe. I don't even need to feel like I need to go into an explanation about, you know, a, a history lesson as to what you know, happened right um, with Andrew Jackson. But I, there was a student at Institute of American Indian Arts where I teach part time, and and he said, um, sometimes you have to make fun of your oppressors, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you know that in a way, um, I think in this book, Edgar's uh, sections are the absurd mm-hmm. sections because in a way they feel um, so surreal, and they end up in this. Darkening Land, which is this sort of mythological place that's mentioned in old Cherokee stories. Um, but, you know, I, I I do some things like um, have the person um, inventing this video game that is designed to shoot natives. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. That is is on one hand feels very racist and absurd. But then again, look at what's going on in our right. world right now. Right. Right. And and. You know, and that his friend, you know, there's some there's some absurd like, you know, his friend is named um, Jackson uh, Andrews. Right. (laughs) Right. So it's it's done in, in an absurd way. But I'm trying to show that the absurdity is not so different than the normal. Right. What we're dealing with. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's almost it's like a little a little satirical in those sections. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's actually maybe like a little bit more than just a little. It's a, there's some definitely some satire in those sections, um, in the darkening lands, and
1: yeah, with the especially with the the uh, the video game manual, right, right, which right. um the tor- torturous radioactive mud pit, and in parentheses, you know, TRMP, right, and uh, you know, there's some there's you know some little sort of fun uh, satirical things, yeah, right.
0: Do you, I mean, you mentioned how like, you know, this book is not fun and it's not, it's, you know, you're trying to evoke a certain response or feeling in your reader. Are you as a writer able to find joy in writing or is it really difficult to write a story like this?
1: I always find joy in, in writing and yes, there are some difficult, I mean, it's a, it's a very heavy, difficult subject matter, but I, I really try to tell students that you can write about very, very difficult things, but you should find the pleasure in doing that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and maybe that pleasure comes out of, you know, what I'm writing about here will raise discussions and conversations about things that people aren't comfortable talking about. Right. I mean, certainly, you know, people aren't comfortable talking about police shootings, you know, and, and, you know, maybe that's changing. And, and I think, you know, contributing, to the the conversation is, is an important thing for for a fiction writer to think about, right? And so I've I, you know, part of the joy, yes, was as a fiction writer, the mythological darkening land is was fun, you know, and, and that was because it was so bizarre and and you know, it's like writing fabulous or or something sci-fi or something where you just sort of find a lot of fun. And we're reading that kind of stuff sometimes is fun. But, you know, the pleasure that I get from writing like Sonia's sections or Maria's sections is more along the lines of really getting inside the head of a character that is Mm. nothing like me and showing, you know, trying to show what it's like for a mother who has lost her teenage son to a shooting and and watching her husband, um, you know, become more and more forgetful from his Alzheimer's. What is that like? And then how can something like taking in um, emergency right. care foster child be life-changing for them? That was, was starting place. That's where the, you know, the sort of pleasure is, is discovering those kinds of things yeah. that you hope really move the story story forward and show this, how these characters begin to change.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned sort of, the, one of the impetus of this for writing this book was um, the police violence against Native children, and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also mentioned in this conversation how you know that not to take away from other groups that are targeted by police. So I'm curious, kind of specifically, in what what ways you found the the police violence against Native youth to be uniquely its own, or specifically, like what that what that looks like.
1: There was a blame in a lot of the articles that I was reading. There was a blame on the, the teenager who mm. got shot that there was mental illness
0: mm.
1: as if that's, you know, that becomes, right. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mental illness problem, right? Because, because people aren't getting enough meds for their mental illness. So, you know, they're going to um, react violently and they should be shot, right? That's right. The way, that's the way the absurdity in that, that maybe it's not a mental illness problem. Maybe it's a police problem. Yeah. Maybe it's a racial problem. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, that to me, you know, it is is really just, you know, jaw dropping that I was reading these articles and they were blaming this, you know, on on mental illness. Um, Is there a mental illness problem in in the United States? Of course, there is a lot of people. Right. I mean. But, I, you know, it just felt really, really um, unfair to those kids who have died to say that really the reason they got shot was because they weren't getting or they were suffering from a mental illness. Right. That seems very, very unfair to me.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it. it's it's totally unfair and it's. Mm-hmm. You know, a way to avoid having to take any responsibility for any actions, which is something that we see so commonly with yeah. white with white power um, or white people in power. I'm also curious, I guess, because this book, you said you started in 2018. We're now in 2021. In the summer of 2020, we had this sort of racial reckoning where Americans started to deal, white Americans started to deal with their um, understanding of race, I guess, allegedly in a different way, which we can talk about, I mean, on another podcast. But I'm curious as someone you know because i think not only was it about white people's relationship to blackness and anti-blackness and other people of color's experiences but i do think there was also sort of a call to reckon with the ways that um native people have been abused also and i think that that was brought into the conversations in a lot of circles that i i have been a part of so i'm kind of curious in what ways this book was Was there any like I want to change something? There's is there some, was there any like feeling of I wish that this could be here or or a connection to the you know any sort of connection or change that you felt like because of what happened over the summer?
1: Well, really changing the stereotype, Mm. right? Since the summer, it feels like you know people are having conversations now, which is is great, and um, you know, we, we it feels more hopeful, I think. You know than it used to, mm. but I—I I mean, I was thinking more about—I mean, in—in in terms of this book, trying to get away from the stereotype of how natives are labeled as savage, right? Is—is a—is it—is an old term that's used a lot? Mm-hmm. Um, and Hollywood seems to me to be—and I hope this is changing—but they seem to be very interested wild people, portraying them as you know these sort of. Outsiders and you know having a very a stereotype image, uh, which is, I think you know ridiculous. I, I hope that it's changing. Sure. Tommy Orange had this fantastic novel there, there ta- mm-hmm. talking about the urban native. Of course, that I hope that that stereotype will slowly change, go away. That you know we can that people can start to see natives as as normal, regular people, and right. also you know, natives are often defined by how much blood hmm. count, blood quantum, and how they look a lot, you know, um, and and that comes out of, you know, the whole thing, this this colonization culture comes out of, you know, um, like my struggle of sort of wondering, um, am I native enough to write about this, or am I native enough, you know, um, right?
0: And who has the answer to that? Who decides right. that? Is that a you thing? Like, do you decide when you're Native enough for yourself? Or are you waiting for someone to, to vow val- Like, I, I don't, I, it's just... It's,
1: it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's those are, you know, and, and I'm certainly not the only person to...
0: Of course not.
1: To, to face that, you know, and, and because I, I think it, it certainly probably happens, you know, among um, other people of color, right?
0: Sure, certainly
1: yeah yeah and and but it's you know it is it's so problematic and that comes out of that colonization of here's the way it is and here's what you can't do and and but also
0: so. i think don't you think it also comes In addition to that, it also comes from that not wanting to take response, like white people not wanting to take responsibility for their actions. And so they want to be able to project some sort of culpability on the victim. So if you're not native enough to tell this story, therefore, the story does not get to be told because you don't get to tell it because I, person who has you know, victimized your people have now decided that you actually aren't even one of those people. So how dare you tell this story about how I'm a bad guy, you know?
1: Yes. Oh, man, you said that so beautifully.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think about this stuff all the time.
1: (laughs) Yes. Write that down. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, I've got it recorded. I can transcribe.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that is absolutely spot on. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and then I want to talk more with you about your process. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three-plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. So the first thing I want to know sort of about the process is the title. When did you come to the title of this book and and how did you know it was the one?
1: I was struggling with the title. I knew, I knew it I, It wanted to be, you know, writing about the removal mm. and with Chala's section about the removal, you know, from the land. Um and And how the family seems removed from each other and you know sort of removed from their own thoughts of their you know their own feelings of healing and forgiveness. But I wasn't sure what the title was exactly. then my friend um Brad McClelland, who is a he's a writer, also he writes a middle grade uh, series. Um, he and I were having coffee at a at a coffee shop you know, I was telling him about the book and everything and he's, and he's, he's the one that recommended, he said, how about the removed, Mm. you know? And I thought, yeah, that's, that's great. That's, you know, so that's really, he's the one I I credit him in the, in the book, you know, for, (laughs) for really giving it, but I knew that I wanted it removal or something, you know, because Mm -hmm. that was so apparent, so evident with, within all the characters.
0: Yeah. And where do you write? physically? Are you in your home? I mean, obviously with the pandemic, things are maybe slightly different, but I guess pre-pandemic or during pandemic, where are you writing? What's your setup like? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you have any rituals like lighting a candle? Can you listen to music? Sort of like set the scene for how you like to write.
1: I write in, um, yeah, I have an office at home. Uh, which is a room with my computer and my books and uh, my guitar. And I don't know that there are any rituals because I I can also go to a coffee shop and, okay. and I sort of like, I you know, as a change of pace, I sort of like the, I think it's, I can still get into that zone, right? Mm-hmm. And, and with the, the stimulation from people and, you know, or or music playing. But mostly with the pandemic, I have, you know, sort of just secluded myself um, and write anytime. Uh, mostly it's late at night when everybody, when the house is quiet and mm-hmm. everybody's asleep, I will usually try to write for, you know, a good three hours, wow. four hours. And if I can, um, sometimes throughout the day, if I'm not teaching or grading or working with students, if I have, you know, a couple of hours, I'll try to um, knock out a page or, or do some editing or something a big part of it for me is just pulling up the manuscript on the computer um, and just working on it. getting into the chair, pulling it up. It's kind of like going to the gym for me. Okay. It's, <laughs> one, it's once I can get to the gym, I, I will have a good workout. But Great. 90% of the difficulty is me changing clothes and getting in the car and driving to the gym. Right, right, right. That's right. that's more difficult. Once I get there, it's like, okay, yeah, I can do this. But Right. So,
0: you skimmed yeah. my favorite part of the question, which is snacks or beverages. Can you have oh, them? Yeah. Do you are you accompanied by anything to eat or drink?
1: I usually don't eat uh when I'm working, but I do um keep water or coffee okay. often.
0: And how do you take your coffee?
1: You know, I like iced coffee to be honest. Oh, okay. um, I put uh, half and half and sweetener mm. in it. Yes. I like it sweet. I don't, I've never understood people that just drink it, you know, like straight black yeah. without any kind of creamer or sweetener. I just, I just love to sweeten it, right? I
0: I don't drink coffee because I only like to consume things that give me great pleasure. And I think coffee tastes disgusting, but I do drink tea and I drink my tea very milky and very sweet because I, again, Mm -hmm. only like to consume things that are pleasurable. Why would I drink this if I didn't taste So My husband is team all black coffee. Like he once got mad at me because I didn't know at Starbucks if you order an iced coffee, it comes with sweetener in it. And he was like, what is this?
1: It's like, well, mm. sorry.
0: Like, oh, I don't get mm, it. But yeah. some people just like to be miserable, I guess. I don't know.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I, just, yeah. I can't drink it straight black. Um, yeah. I have to have it. I, you know, I have, it's kind of like tea. I have to sweeten tea. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I drink um, iced tea, I have to put, you know, if not sugar, sweetener in it or yeah. something, which I, which I know is not, is not good for you. But, well, um,
0: nothing's good for you anymore. You know, just, that's right. I we know. have to do what feels nice these days. Okay, so what other stuff sort of, if you remember, I know that this was a while ago that you wrote the book, so some people can never, can't never always remember, but do you remember what sort of stuff you were reading or watching or listening to while you were writing this book that maybe kind of influenced you in any way?
1: Well, I was thinking, again, I was thinking about Murakami. Okay. You know, some of some of his work. Uh, Who was I also thinking? I, I was thinking about Jasmine Ward's uh, Seeing Unburied Sea. Sure. Yeah, which is, um, you know, a beautiful novel, and and told from different voices, right?
0: Yeah. And
1: and still, a relatively it's not a it's not a huge book, you know. No. It's
0: it's very short.
1: Yeah, it's under three hundred pages. And uh, but I I like the way. Well, she's brilliant, first yeah. of all, but yeah. <laughs> but the way that she you know threads the voices, the stories, and that in that in seeing unburied Sing is just amazing. So I know that. Um, you know, I was thinking about that book.
0: Yeah, when I shared my my sort of little mini review online of the book, someone commented, "This sounds a little bit like Sing I'm Buried Sing." And my first reaction was like, "No, it's not." And then I was like, "Actually, these books yeah. are definitely in conversation with one another because there's the history, and then there's this one family, and it's the multiple perspectives, and there's sort of the surreal. Like, they are sort of like book cousins, maybe."
1: Well, that's. An honor um, <laughs> that I can be, <laughs> I can be. Yeah, uh, you know, compared to her at at all. You know, I, I don't. I, I think she's just an amazing, brilliant writer, and and um, but but I yeah, I think it's probably you know an influence on on this book and and on me.
0: Yeah, um, one of the other things in this book is that uh, Maria, the mother character, is a re- recently retired social worker, and I. I'm pretty sure I've heard that you were a social worker at one point. Um, mm-hmm. When did you decide to make the transition from doing social work into becoming a writer?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I, I was a social worker for seven years. It was um, from the time I was 29 to uh, 36. Okay. And yes, um, but I was writing before then, you know, since I got to college, I really fell in love with it. And, and and started fi- writing fiction, but, but I've, I've always been writing. It's just uh, that those seven years, you know, my mom was a social worker and, and is retired now. And it was a way, it was kind of a job that I fell into because at mm. the time I needed, I, I really needed a, a decent job um, that had benefits. And, and, you know, that it's, I, I think social workers are just, it's are like teachers and that they're underpaid and for right. the, amazing work that they do and the things that they see. And um, I I decided I left because I wanted to pursue my uh, PhD and I really wanted to follow my passion, which was to write, to really focus on writing and also teaching. And I knew I had to get a, a PhD. I, I didn't apply for an MFA. I, I, went to, I just went on for the PhD. I already had an MA mm. and...
0: You're like, I need, I need to get that big degree.
1: (laughs) Well, it's just, I mean, it was just more convenient because I was right there in Oklahoma. Sure. Okay. Yeah. At the time, our our son was about, our oldest son was about to be born and I didn't want to do a a big move. Um, And so it was, yeah, just really following much more of my passion. And, And I still have a, this soft place in me, you know, to help people and to 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 help especially teenagers hmm. um you know I and I, I grew up in a town that was uh, in, in parts it was you know a little bit rough and you know I had a lot of friends and and you know who struggled and and um, various things in their home and you know it's uh it's just always been a part of my life and and my mom's life and so but I, I yeah I just I just wanted to go on and and follow my passion, really. Was
0: there anyone who inspired you to be a writer or how did you know you wanted to write?
1: I took a uh, an in- introduction to literature class. And at the same time, I was also deciding what I wanted to major in. And I knew I was like, well, I like to read, you know, I, I wasn't really sure. But that introduction to literature class when I had some contemporary literature uh, in there really got me interested. So I enrolled in an an introduction to creative writing and I just really, really loved it. I just thought, wow, this is so much fun. I love this. Um, and then when I did my master's, I took a class with, um, Stuart O'Nan, who, uh, is a, is a novelist and, and, um, uh, he was at the time, he doesn't teach anymore, but at the time he was a a visiting uh, professor. And I took a couple of writing classes with him. And once I took those with him, it really opened up all this amazing, like he was the one that sort of opened up this amazing world of of book writers I had not not heard of.
0: Yeah. Since you have a PhD, which is very Mm -hmm. fancy, this question is extra important. So think carefully. What is the word you can never spell correctly on the first try?
1: Ooh, Wow. You, you may have to pause. Let me think for this a second <laughs> because I i know that there's one that I come across a lot. Resilience,
0: maybe? I believe it. That's a hard one.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, because I always—I don't know if it's ANC or ENS. It's ENC, isn't it? Resilience? ENCE? You're,
0: you're truly asking <laughs> the ro- most wrong person. I was going to say wrongest, but that's also not a word. So I can't spell any word correctly on the first try. So resilience... Who knows it could be i or e maybe a I don't
1: know <laughs> it's a great question, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I know i there I, I come across those words that you know I, I, i'm that end in a and c or e and c that i I tend to you know um wow, I know I'm gonna think of one because I know there's one really word that makes me feel very dumb when i that I can't i've come across I just can't think of it right now. (laughs)
0: That's okay. That's okay. I feel like resilience is very good. I'm curious, you know, you've written a bunch of books and uh, your book before this one, where the dead said talking, uh, was was shortlisted for the National Book Award. And how do you follow up something like that? Like, how do you navigate that yourself?
1: Yeah, that was a really, that book didn't get a lot of attention until it was shortlisted for the National Book Award. It hmm. was not reviewed in very many places. It was um, published by an independent publisher, you know, Soho Press. Um good distribution through Penguin Random House, but uh but was not reviewed, didn't get much attention at, at all until uh, you know, I was just absolutely floored hmm. to be long listed. And then when it became a finalist, I just I just couldn't believe it. But I I part of it is, you know, I have other books Mm-hmm. Um, earlier that are small press that I'm just sort of not used to any kind of pressure, I guess. It's like, well, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> if people pay attention and read it, they they do. I think, I think what becomes paralyzing for a lot of writers and maybe a lot of writers who have big debut books that get, you know, really big New York Times reviews, maybe wins big awards. I a you know, publishing is always big on debuts it seems like and really i wonder i don't know but i wonder if that's not paralyzing to a writer to think now my second book is going to immediately be a, a the follow-up's going to not be nearly as good right that seems seems to me like a lot of pressure right, the more right. we, we build up a debut novelist uh, but i don't know i can't speak to that because i was not <laughs> my first two books you know are just um you know not really even in print and not many people have read them Um, but, uh, so, you know, when this one, when where the dead sit talking, you know, got, got some attention, I was, it was, I was very excited. And so I don't think that it really put any pressure on this for me because, you know, it's not like I ever got much money or anything. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to do what I find pleasurable. Right.
0: Yeah. That's sort of nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think for a lot of people, the success or the acknowledgement or the critical acclaim or whatever you want to call it can be paralyzing, whether it's their first book or their fifth book or whatever. But it's nice to know that you feel like, you know, I'm just going to write my book,
1: <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> you know, at some point it's it's like, I mean, the older I get and start thinking, I just feel very lucky just to be able to do it. I mm-hmm. mean to be alive and to be healthy, to watch my kids grow. You know, I, I feel very blessed in that, in that way that, yeah, I want people to read it, but I mean, there are a lot more important things that should be placed, you know, in my priorities, Yeah, you know, thinking about, thinking about health and, and, you know, my kids and, and family and, and taking care of them and, and, um, uh, as long as I can continue to, to do this, um, I I love it. Um, even if, you know, everything I wrote from this point on, nobody ever wanted to read, I would still be writing. <laughs> because I think a big part of it is, you know, writing for myself. And I, I think, you know, maybe where writers get sort of blocked is when they worry too much about thinking about the readership. The thing about, you know, this book was a, I guess what bothers me a little bit, I'm, I apologize if I'm rambling, but don't worry. You know, the, it was a January book of the month club, and they labeled it, I think, contemporary fiction, which it seemed weird because the book feels very much like literary fiction to me. I feel it like a very, you know, if we're going to categorize things, it's more literary fiction.
0: I don't even know the difference between those two categories.
1: I I mean, I just think that, I, yeah well, I, I just think that thinking about readers, when they think about contemporary, they, they think more about, you know, writers maybe like Kristen Hannah.
0: Okay, I see.
1: And it's a little bit more. I don't know. I can't say because I haven't read that book, right? But I mean, the. Um, I mean, my, my stuff is going to be a little bit weirder and going to be a little bit more, you know, focused on language than plot. For example, right. I want to. Fo- I want to focus on looking at, thinking about language and why a character says something rather than, following that you know sort of, traditional plot. So I, I think a lot of people may have from book of the month or something may have thought, well, this book is not what they thought it was, or I don't know. I mean, I can worry about that stuff, but at the same time, screw it. I mean, right. I mean this is the, book. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thought becomes problematic and you know, you just can't like what Toni Morrison said, right? Right. The book that you want most want to read. Right. So that's what I try to do as, as, odd as they come out or whatever
0: <laughs> but like odd and a good like such a good way i feel like well thank you i don't know i don't know if i would use the word odd i think your book is so good so i don't i don't want you to diminish it to my audience because i don't want my audience to think that it's odd and have a negative connotation it's very good you need to talk nicer about your books
1: i, I know <laughs> yeah I, i'm i'm all about uh self
0: Oh my gosh, I feel you. I'm the most self deprecating person, but I don't like when authors talk bad about their books that I like because then it makes me feel like I am weird and I don't like to feel weird. <laughs> just kidding.
1: Thank you for that. It's, it's, um, I just like to do different stuff, right? Yeah. And, and ch- I, but I love it, you know, I love doing what i what I want to do, well, so. I think
0: that's what makes your book so good and interesting is that they're they're very clearly something you know, like there is clearly yeah. a point of view and and an artistry to the work, and it's not it's not you know trying to be anything else. it's unique and and authentically itself, whatever the thing is it is, which I think you know is. Unfortunately, rare in literature because I think mm-hmm. so many people are worried about fitting in a specific box or, or whatever that is or feeling like they need to be marketed one way or the other. And I, and I feel like what I appreciated about The Removed was that I was struggling to figure out what it was and I never mm-hmm. once – had a problem with that like it was part of the reading experience to be like where am I now what's happening now like what does that feel like what does that mean for me or to me and how is that changing and that's a really thrilling experience for a reader especially when the book it doesn't have a ton of plot you know like I mean there's a lot of stuff does happen but to be able to evoke that in a reader without having a lot of like things happening is really very cool. At least that was my experience of it.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, part of the fragmented language and and some of the you know the things I was doing with you know jumping around points of you know different voices and so forth. Um, you know, was intentional and and a focus on that. You know, on how disjointed things feel out there in the mm. world when people are shooting. I mean, you know, not everything is is perfectly aligned, right, and. You know, so yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, so for people like me who really enjoyed your book, um, and we will refrain from mentioning "Sing Unburied, Sing" again, but um, for people who love your book, what are other books that you recommend to them that maybe are in conversation? Obviously, they don't have to be the same, but books that you feel like kind of speak to what you've done with the removed.
1: My friend Kelly Joe Ford's "Crooked Hallelujah." Mm, okay, um, is is a native? She's a, a Cherokee Nation citizen as I am enrolled. And, um, but it's, it's more of, you know, a book of, sto- it's, it's more of stories, a novel and stories about mother daughter relationships. But I think that they still speak to the experience of natives and, uh, displacement, those same kind of themes that I'm interested in.
0: Mm, that's awesome. I have that book. I have not read it yet, so I need to pick it up. And I just I guess I have just one more question for you, which is if you could have one person, dead or alive, read the removed, who would you want it to be? I,
1: I would I wish Michelle Obama or oh. President Obama um, Barack Obama would read it. I would I would yeah. The the one of those two. Yeah, one of the Obamas.
0: That would be my answer every single time to this question. Anyone yeah, who answers anything <laughs> that's not an Obama, I'm like, what do you right. mean? Oh my gosh. Uh, A dream. Yeah. A yes. dream. Oh my yes. gosh. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for your time today. For everyone at home, the book, again, is called The Removed. It's by Brandon Hobson. Brandon, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tracy. It was an honor to, to speak with you today.
0: Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the Stacks. Thank you to Brandon for being my guest today. And thank you to Caitlin mulroney Liskey, and Rachel Sargent for making this interview possible. Remember, the Sax Book Club pick for March is Everybody Looking by Candice Elo. We will be joined by Nick Stone for that discussion on Wednesday, March 31st. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at the Pod on Instagram and at the TheStacksPod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, TheStacksPodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirages. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.